We all know the feeling. You check into a hotel room, lock the doors, and immediately jump onto the bed and reach for the TV remote. Oh, where is this going? Is it Cinemax after dark? <laughs> Not quite. Before you get there, you start clicking through the channels and lo and behold, it takes all of 25 seconds to find a channel that's showing friends. Of course. Well, there are friends on Cinemax after dark too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, but none of them have the Rachel. Oh, they've got double Rachel. <laughs> Yes, there are some shows that are just ubiquitous and friends might be the cream of the crop or the latte at Central Perk. But what if we told you there was a show that was supposed to be the friends of another TV network, but instead of finding success on hotel room TV screens for decades to come, the show flailed and floundered until it finally fizzled out. Welcome to the Pop Trash Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Griggs. And I'm Mike Jones. Each episode, we take a pop topic and trash talk it. But with love, of course. Ooh, and as Mary Tyler Moore said, love is all around. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're talking copycat flops. Shows created in the fervor of big juggernauts, but that quietly disappeared into the pop culture abyss. So grab your Oreos, or maybe your Hydrox, and let's begin grabbing our Oreos. <laughs> you can't see it right now, but I'm grabbing my Oreos. <laughs> oh, God. Whew, that intro had way too many words that start with F. I think after this season on flops is over, you're never going to let us use a word that starts with F again. No, no more F and Fs. <laughs> All right, Eric, I have a question for you. Do you know how many TV shows got canceled last year? And let's say if you guess within 10, I'll give you some ho-hos, which I believe we can safely say are copycats from either Little Debbie's Swiss Cake Rolls or Drake's Yodels. What did you call me? (laughs) It was Um, so rude you said it twice. (laughs) (laughs) We can do this like the clock game, though, from The Price is Right. So you give me a number of for the TV shows that got canceled last year, and I'll say higher or lower. Um, I'm going to say... Uh, 620. Oh, lower. You're low. It's lower. Oh, okay. Uh, two. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's, 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 it's higher. (laughs) Hmm. Let's go with 110. All right. You're in the ballpark. I'm going to give it to you, even though it is approximately 128. Oh, so we're, we're talking about 128 shows, roughly speaking, shows that were expected to fly or at least hoped that they would fly. But instead, they flopped. So today I want to focus our episode on at least two shows in history that were based off of or inspired by blockbuster hits. You know, that thing where like a network sees something pop off on another channel and an executive thinks, oh, my gosh, we need something like that on our network. Definitely. I'm popping off on the network all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, your 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 pitch for NBC to finally bring back Madame. <laughs> it's uh, Madam. <laughs> <laughs> bring back Madame show. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, fine. It's Madam. We'll say it's Madam. But yeah, so today I want to talk about two sitcoms. Uh, and we're going to start with a sitcom focused on a bunch of friends living in New York City in the mid-1990s. Sounds familiar, right? Yeah, living single. <laughs> no, the other one. Oh, um, coupling? 
Uh, no, the one before that. Higher, lower. Oh, <laughs> is it um, Buds? For Christ's sake, Murder it's Friends. <laughs> oh, that, that obscure show. Yes, Friends. And the show that was supposed to be CBS's version was Can't Hurry Love. And I swear to God, if you sing the Supremes song or that copycat Phil Collins song, I'm going to make you say more words that start with F. All right, let's talk Can't Hurry Love. And I just want to start with the cast. So you know Nancy McKeon. Do I? We're neighbors in my mind. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. So, you know, Nancy McKeon, you know, Mariska Hargitay. I do. Well, after the facts of life for Nancy, but before Law and Order SVU for Mariska, there was Can't Hurry Love for both of them. And they played best friends who lived across the hall from each other. And are you ready for the tagline? If people weren't meant to date, they'd be born married. Huh. I'm going to have to think about that one yeah, for a while. Uh, here it is again. If people weren't meant to date, they'd be born married. Mm, gotcha. See, I I don't know. I love this framing. It's a, mm-hmm. such, a, it's such a good framing. Here it is. It's okay. Like, if people weren't meant to eat Olive Garden, they'd be born hating breadsticks. Mm, true. That's Hospitaliano. You'll love how Italian our Italian is. So you've mentioned Nancy McKeon yes. and Mariska Hargitay yes. are the stars of this. Yes. Where are the other friends? Ooh, were so there we'll get... like five friends? Were there six friends? How many friends are there? I, I think there know. were four friends. And, and so this is where it varies slightly, but here's basically the setup. So Nancy McKeon is hopelessly single Annie O'Donnell and her best friend is sexy divorcee Dee Dee Edelstein who's played by Mariska Hargitay and who lives next door. Wouldn't you love it if you were cast on a TV show and your framing was sexy divorcee? Yes, and named Dee Dee. I know, that's a good name. It's like right? my calling. <laughs> you just need a smoky voice, Brendan Vaccaro here. <laughs> so that's the two of them. And then there are two dudes who interact with the pair. And basically the four of them are just a bunch of friends who live and work and banter with each other in New York City. All right. So this show, it actually got 19 episodes, but it and it wasn't entirely like a ratings flop. It did relatively okay, but critics kind of summed it up. The show never felt like it tried very hard to be the same caliber as Friends. And that kind of bland energy just meant that it sort of piddled around for a season, but didn't really make any lasting impressions. And so I want to play a clip from the pilot and I just want you to see or I want you to tell me, do you think this is funny? Hi, I am doing something so exciting that I can't get to the phone right now. But if you leave a message, I'll call you back when both of my hands are free. Steve, how many times do I have to tell you to stay away from my machine? Hello, please leave a message after the tone. Hello? Who says hello? You sound like you're selling Tupperware and I do it again. I don't care about my outgoing message. Annie, your outgoing message is your poem to the universe. It's your chance to to express yourself, to emote, to sing. No, that would be Madonna's message. Can I please just get on with my life? What life? You're home alone on a Saturday night. No, I'm not. I'm with you. Home from a date by 9.15? That is not good. A good date is 3 a.m., tequila stains on your blouse, and your bra in your purse. That clip to me is very telling of this show, which is... Eh, not that funny. (laughs) It doesn't really pop, right? Like there's not, Mm -hmm. like, again, I know that's only one clip, but there's just like kind of a safetiness to it that Mm -hmm. makes it feel 
I don't know, tepid. Would you agree? Yeah, I can see where you're going with this, that like Friends was the mold and then everybody rushing to try and create that spark of funny banter, witty lines and daily life things and dating and their stories. But that really has to click. Yeah, totally. And that's the thing with this, like there are some good episode plots of this. So like in the second episode, Annie has to ask somebody out after a game of truth or dare with her friends or Roger, you know, the character played by Roger is Louis Mandalore who gets a massage from a man. And that was scandalous in 1995, 1996. <laughs> Shocking. I don't, I don't have to tell Talk you. Talk about Cinemax after dark. <laughs> I know. But like that was the crux of an episode. There's another episode where they actually bring Charlotte Ray. Uh, who worked with Nancy on Facts of Life uh, oh. in an episode where Annie and Roger go out shopping for a mattress and they run into Charlotte Ray playing a character. And so there's like some quirky and cool things, but it just doesn't actually like hit with the same freshness that I think Friends actually touched on in the mid 90s. Whether you like Friends today or not, it was successful because it hit on something that people really wanted to watch. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, even if you have some sitcom plot lines like that, that could be interesting or guest stars that were interesting, it just didn't connect. But you do know this show because you're hinting at something else that I think happened, which this show was part of a historic crossover. I love this crossover. I don't really remember much about Can't Hurry Love, but it was part of Taylor Made Mondays. Is that what you're that, talking about? Is that Taylor Swift Made Mondays? <laughs> One could hope, but Taylor, no, Taylor, Taylor Hanson, Taylor Hicks, Soul Patrol. Taylor Hicks. <laughs> no, we're talking about Elizabeth Taylor. And um, she crossed through Can't Hurry Love, Murphy Brown, The Nanny. The, the story was that, you know, Liz Taylor had lost her black pearls in a cab. Hijinks ensue and it runs through all of the shows. It's a fun little pop, pop history footnote there. So... You mean to tell me that Elizabeth Taylor lost black pearls and not white diamonds? Yes, it was the, I think, the follow-up fragrance to white diamonds. Elizabeth Taylor? What do you know? I've always wanted to meet her. Oh, no, uh-uh. We are not going within spritzing distance of that woman. <laughs> oh, Annie, would you relax? It's not as if Elizabeth Taylor knows you're the one who lost her $300,000 pearl necklace. What? <laughs> okay, okay, I forgive you. Wow. I wish I had just an ounce of her class. Well, now you can with my fabulous new perfume available at fine stores everywhere. Thank you. Oh, it really was, you know, two hours of ads for Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> These have always brought me luck until oh, I lost goodness. them in Rosie O'Donnell's cab. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. So, you know, like we said, critics just didn't love this. This show is not terrible. There's lots of other shows in the TV graveyard but it just didn't try hard enough to actually do what it was meant to do, which was sort of mimic friends. Can't hurry it off the schedule fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> and also to be fair, it wasn't the only show that, you know, of that time that was trying to be a friend sort of success story. You had Townies on ABC with Molly Ringwald. Uh, there was another show called Lush Life with Karen Parsons and Lori Petty. And then you even had a bro -y attempt with Chicago Sons, which starred a young Jason Bateman. And they oh. just all, I know, they all followed a simple sort of similar setup. Young adults, mostly single, trying to make their way in a big city with some friends. And they all didn't last more than one season, basically.
All right. Well, before we finish this, the real, the real funny thing about Can't Hurry Love to Me uh, and it sort of being CBS's attempt at Friends is, did you know that Nancy McKeon was a finalist for the role of Monica on Friends? Oh, wow. Talk about full circle. I know. She basically auditioned for the, the role and it came down to her and Courtney Cox and the, the head of NBC at the time, who I think was Dick Ebersol, basically told the producers of Friends, you make the decision. And so they hemmed and they hawed and they took like an afternoon or an evening to think about it. And they settled on Courtney Cox. And you would think that Nancy McKeon might be somewhat upset by that. You miss out on a huge opportunity that just became a cultural juggernaut. Mm. You know, I'm sure they all made tens of millions of dollars, but she really wasn't. Nancy McKeon actually like was quoted in the Baltimore Sun, I think in the mid nineties, late nineties, basically saying, you know, that role is Courtney's. I couldn't have done it as good as she did. And that just makes me feel really good about Nancy McKeon. I have no idea if she's actually a wonderful person in real life, but I'm going to guess based on that comment that she is. So I want to move us on to our second show, which also takes us back in time, although this time we're going back a little further to 1985. So we're in the mid 80s. I love the mid 80s. <laughs> That's uh, about the size of my waistline now after this pandemic, too. <laughs> All right. You know Urkel, right? Do I? He's my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I live on the best street. Nancy McKeon to the right, Urkel to the left. <laughs> Um, but you know Urkel. You know Gladys Knight. Yes, she sang the best Bond theme song, License to Kill. I disagree that that's the best Bond it's theme song. It's definitely not the best, but it's a great one. All right. Uh, I do think she sings the best version of Try to Remember. And like, oh, the way we were. It's a no. combo. It's a mashup. Oh, stop. It's no. good. Talk about a license to kill myself. <laughs> so I know Urkel and Gladys Knight. You know, I'm Urkel, not sure where Gladys this is going. Uh, Urkel, Gladys Knight. Do you know Flip Wilson? I do. He's just a trailblazer. More people should know Flip Wilson. I agree. My More people yeah. should know him. Uh, who is Flip Wilson? Tell people who Flip Wilson is. Uh, Flip Wilson is, I believe, the first black man to host a TV variety show. I mean, he's a comedian, um, but that is a huge milestone in his career. And I suspect a lot of people don't know him because with rights and variety shows, you don't see variety shows on TV rerun much anymore. He performed in drag as this character, mm -hmm. Geraldine, which is hilarious. You watch your mouth, honey, the name is Jones. Geraldine Jones. And don't forget it. And the catchphrase, if you've ever heard, the devil made me do it, came from Flip Wilson. So funny, funny guy. And um, I wish more people knew about Flip Wilson. I totally agree. Brilliant stand-up, kind of in the same league, I think I would say, as like a Richard Pryor or uh, Steve Martin or the stand-ups, Jonathan Winters maybe, of the sort of 60s, 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think he gets the credit that he's due. Definitely not. Here's maybe a curveball. I know him. I'm not sure if you will. Christoph St. John. In the 80s, he was a teenager, uh, but... He became subsequently famous for essentially having a role on The Young and the Restless for almost 30 years. I'm checking right now, too, because I would be shocked if Christoph St. John was also not on Circus of the Stars at some point. And yet, oh, who wasn't? I know. <laughs> I'm looking. Maybe he wasn't on Circus of the Stars, but I feel like that doesn't was mean he's not a star. 
<laughs> he actually just passed away a couple of years ago. And so he's another cast member of the show we're about to talk about. We're going to yes. put this math equation together. We've got Urkel, which I feel bad. I should stop calling him Urkel. Jaleel White. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so you have, you have Urkel, the actor named Jaleel White. We have Gladys Knight. We have Flip Wilson. We have Christoph St. John. And we have Della Reese. So now what if I told you in 1985 and 1986, all those names starred in a sitcom on CBS that is widely regarded as CBS's answer to The Cosby Show. Wow. I, I, know. I would also say, like, how did I miss it? Because I that sounds like something I'm interested in. Right. Exactly. It's shocking to me that this show has kind of like stayed under the radar and it was around for a season, give or take, you know, maybe not a full season of episodes, but ran from like a September through a May in 1985 and 1986. And the show was called Charlie and Company. No, not to be confused with Charlie's Angels or Charles oh. in Charge or any other Charlie from the 1980s. All right. Well, so obviously the Cosby show is is possibly the biggest TV show of the 1980s, launched in 1984, became a huge blockbuster. And all these networks were like, oh, my God, we need something like that on our network. Mm -hmm. So they cast all these this great cast. It's like such heavy hitters. They even brought in Gladys Knight, not only to star, but to sing the theme song. Wow. So the theme song is this sort of soulful banger that you could almost picture climbing up the charts a little bit. It has that vibe of Michael McDonald and Patti LaBelle's duet. Anyway, so here's the general plot of Charlie and Company. So Flip Wilson and Gladys Knight are husband and wife. They play Charlie and Diana. They have three sassy and outspoken kids. They all live in Chicago where Charlie has a blue collar job with the Department of Highways. Somewhere along the way, Diana, uh, that's Gladys Knight's character, has a sarcastic aunt named Aunt Rachel, played by Del Reese, who decides to come and live with the family and she just gets under Charlie's nerves. What's funny about this show to me is it didn't bomb necessarily. And there are some genuinely funny moments that I think are largely driven by Flip Wilson, who, you know, as you said, is this legendary comic genius. So I want to have you listen to the scene. Well, hi, Dad. Hi. What are you doing? Reading the paper? No, I'm giving myself an eye test. <laughs> Mind if I uh, sit down? In the 16 and a half years that you've been eating my food, how many times have I said that you couldn't sit in the same room with me? Never. Okay, then have a seat. <laughs> Is it the writing? Is it the acting? I think it's just flat material and they are just running lines. I think the setup is smart. And obviously this cast has names for days, right? Mm -hmm. like those are famous, famous people. But I kind of feel like you get folks who are not quite giving it their all. And it might be because Flip Wilson wasn't a sitcom actor, right? He's a mm -hmm. stand-up comic and a variety show you know, host mm -hmm. and owner. And when you put someone with that much personality in front of a sitcom that is mm -hmm. very canned and scripted, I think that can sometimes stunt. And I think that similarly with Gladys Knight, you put her in front of a stage of thousands of people and she's going to be the most entertaining thing you'll see all year. Mm -hmm. But when you try to channel that energy into like a tight 22 minute sitcom, I'm not sure. And especially she's not known for her acting if it actually really delivers. 
Yeah, I, they're they're delivering lines as written. I think you're right. And for those two folks that are used to ad libbing and performing to a stage, or even if you watch Flip's variety show, um, when when things aren't working like that, he would break the character and do something funny or throw another line in there that was not scripted. And you can't do that on a sitcom. No, exactly. And he's also playing to a trope, which is essentially blue collar nice dad Mm -hmm. and you can't really you can make a blue collar nice dad funny and you can give him lots of lines but it's like this show was meant to be wholesome it was supposed to be kind of like Mm -hmm. the cosby show how ironic that that was wholesome given how he turned out but like that Mm -hmm. sort of like gentle fatherly figure who um and it's i think sometimes tough to make that the most funniest thing in the room right because it relies on an older audience watching it and it being the kind of least offensive comedy of that probably eight o'clock hour. It was technically the 830 hour, but I'm glad you brought that up because I think another reason why this show might have flopped was because of where CBS stuck this. So they- I'll tell you where they can stick it. <laughs> but yeah, so they stuck it on Wednesday night, sandwiched between a TV version of 1980, the 1980 film Stir Crazy, uh, which <laughs> nobody watched. It bombed and lasted maybe like six or seven episodes. And then this weird comedy anthology series that was called the George Burns Comedy Week, where at 89 years old, George Burns was dubbed the oldest man ever to front a TV show. Oh, and God. Was, I know, right? But what was so <laughs> Nothing says must see TV like that. <laughs> so it was just kind of like mired in an icky lineup. And then it also played opposite Dynasty, which in 1985 and 1986, Dynasty was a juggernaut. Oh, yeah. Um, There's and, no chance. It had no yeah. chance. Yeah. So, like, again, it, it, great premise. I love the cast in theory, but then you get kind of all of this combined, you know, like stale material. I think cast a, a group of actors not that used to doing sitcoms or, or, or TV comedy and a shitty schedule, and you end up with what I'm considering a copycat flop. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, too, when you talk about what it was up against. If it was up against Dynasty, I can see what their approach was really appealing to the typical CBS old audience, the old and the restless leg syndrome (laughs) audience. Yes. So they went the opposite direction. It just didn't pan out. But not all is lost with Charlie and company. And so we kind of talked a little bit about this, but Jaleel White, who is a child in this, he's maybe 10 years old, 12 years old at the most, would go on to become a household name as Steve Urkel in years later, kind of in the same way that Mariska Hargitay would go on to become a household name. And it's just funny to me that like both of them had flops that if they had been renewed for a season or two or three, might have prevented them from actually going on to becoming pop culture icons. And instead you get these two shows that don't do well, but the two of them go on to have mega, mega hits and just brands that kind of take on a life of their own. I love that when a show gets canceled and thank God that it did because they went on to something much more successful. And it is one of those, again, like a footnote in pop culture history that we might not have had this great thing if this other thing had succeeded or had been a little bit better.
All right, Eric, before we sign off, I have a question for you. Can you think of a TV show that copied another or mirrored another that was actually successful, that didn't flop? I can. And yeah, so this is a bit of a role reversal that the copycat was more successful than the original. And my example is the original was a copy of a movie. So this show that was successful is a copy of a copy. Do you remember... Parker Lewis Can't Lose. I do remember Parker Lewis Can't Lose. So Parker Lewis Can't Lose was a 90s Fox show, and it was a blatant ripoff of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And at the very same time, that same year, another network, I want to say ABC, tried to do a Ferris Bueller TV show, which lasted only a few episodes. But Parker Lewis went on to have three seasons. And I think it just hit at the zeitgeist of, if you remember kind of Fox shows that were shot on video, they all kind of look like this low quality. If you look at them today, it's like, did they just make this for YouTube on their phones? It it has that quality and the irreverence that came from the network that was airing Married with Children and The Simpsons. and, and, And it became that kind of the young hip network to watch that your parents didn't like and they weren't watching, even though it was not racy or very provocative. It was just like kind of youth culture of the 90s. And uh, that is my vote for a copy that was more successful than the original. Ooh, I know Parker Lewis can't lose. I remember watching it. If I follow your equation right, you have Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the movie as the big juggernaut that spawns a TV show named Ferris Bueller's day off that <laughs> is uh, a bomb uh-huh. but that is similar to what parker lewis can't lose kind of was in terms of its setup of like a uh what i'm guessing like a, a cocky teenager yep. mm-hmm. yeah exactly who gets away with everything and everybody around him is pissed off that he gets away with everything yeah but he's exactly. actually not that much of a jerk right see mine is and i'm not sure if you'll agree with this but i i think and maybe it's controversial i don't know but i've seen a number of people Uh, in articles from the mid 80s say something similar. So I think this is probably not that much of a stretch. I think a copycat that actually worked is Designing Women. And I'm going to say that Designing Women was seen as a copycat of the Golden Girls. Would you agree? I'm listening. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, Frazier, I guess, is also. (laughs) Damn it. Tell tell me more. Well, so I'm kind of personally, I think there's a couple similarities. You have, you know, a group of women in the South on both shows. You have the Golden Girls starting in 1985, becoming a massive show for NBC. You have Designing Women starting a year later on CBS and becoming one of CBS's biggest shows of the late 80s. Never, I think, Mm -hmm the same rating success that the golden girls had, but certainly by CBS standards was quite good. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that, I think both shows embraced a level of conversation around middle-aged to older women talking about sex and dating and marriage and love and topics that weren't widely covered by Mm -hmm. other sitcoms of the day. Mm -hmm. And then again, I think you kind of have journalists owning into this. So there's this, um, there's this review of designing women. It's first episode in the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel. How funny, because it's all the South. But the writer here basically goes, as imitations go, designing women is classy. 
Dixie Carter, Annie Potts, Delta Burke, and Gene Smart play four interior decorators in Atlanta who work, scheme, and complain about men. And like the Golden Girls, which was created by Susan Harris, it has a gifted writing staff and talented cast. And so like I... It's kind of a compliment to compare the mm-hmm, two in, mm-hmm. in, in some ways. And I know they're very different. And I know there's probably people who are going to be like, they're two different shows. They're not at all mm. the same. But I really think there is kind of some thread that connects them. And just because the Golden Girls had such blockbuster breakout success, you know, a year before Designing Women even aired, let alone was sort of shot and created, I just think you have to kind of own that there might be a little bit of like copycat syndrome there. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the shows have different have have had the same trajectory or had you know don't have intrinsic value to themselves, but I really think that it's an example of a show likely connected to another show that went on to have great success. Mm-hmm. I hear that as I post things on Instagram, I get a lot of because I love Sybil, the show with Sybil Shepherd and um, Christine Baranski. Christine Baranski. Everybody goes, oh, that's just a subpar ab fab, and, and I'm like, okay. I I see, like you're saying, there is a similarity and a connection, but if that's your, you can't get past that. You're not going to watch this show that is eminently funny because it's just seems like a copy to you. Welcome to the nineties and what we've been talking about with friends that it was just like, yeah, here, we're going to serve up more of this thing that everybody likes. Even though Charlie and Company was supposed to be CBS's Cosby show or Can't Hurry Love was supposed to be uh, CBS's answer to friends. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sometimes a network lands on something well. So if it is true that Designing Women was supposed to be CBS's answer to the Golden Girls, it kind of stuck the landing. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our show on Copycat Flops. Copy that. I was waiting (laughs) for you to make that joke. Anyway, we'd love to hear from you. If you like this episode, head on over to poptrashmuseum.com and drop us a line. And be sure to like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever Nancy McKeon gets her podcasts. (laughs) We'll see you next episode. Bye.